On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. there and welcome to episode 166 of Love That Album podcast. My name's Morris. Thanks so much for joining us. This show is proudly part of the Pantheon podcast network of music discussion podcasts. Well, if this show was only limited to be listened to by Australian listeners, I could just say this show features an interview with Don Walker and go straight into it. Nothing more needs to be explained. But given that the show crosses international boundaries, and that's a wonderful thing, I probably need to get into something of a description here. In fact, really, in an ideal world, if there was any justice, I wouldn't even need to have any introduction for international listeners, but such is unfortunately not the case. So here's my intro and my apologies for people who are listening to this who are saying, well, duh, that's obvious. But Don Walker is mainly known in this country for being the brilliant songwriter behind most of the songs written by Cold Chisel. Now, there were some great songs written by Jim Barnes, a a few really wonderful songs that are remembered for by their drummer Stephen Presswich and the guitarist Ian Moss and Phil Small also contributed with a couple of songs. But Don Walker, Walker was the main songwriter for the band initially in their years between 1973 and 1983 and of course on the albums that they've recorded since their reformation starting off I think within 1998 uh, when they reunited and recorded the album The Last Wave of Summer. Back in their original incarnation Cold Chisel made one attempt to get their records heard in the US. I think that they had some fame in parts of Europe, mostly Germany, I think. The American record company wasn't interested, and Jim Barnes went and wrote this song. So they came back and remained absolutely huge in Australia. So for those of you overseas who think that Midnight All was the biggest band ever in this country, let me tell you, it was Cold Chisel. I was an addict to Cold Chisel's music back in the day, and their records are still frequently played on my turntable and in my CD player. But we're not here to talk about Cold Chisel this time around. Following the initial breakup of Cold Chisel, songwriter, pianist Don Walker spent five years or so traveling around Asia, traveling around Europe, then came home and put together a band called Catfish 
And then he went and recorded some albums with Catfish and then in his own name and also with a bit of a super group called Tex, Don and Charlie and go back through the archives of Love That Album. The very first show I ever did with my brother from another mother, Tim Merrill, was on the album All Is Forgiven by Tex, Don and Charlie. I'm recording this in May of 2023. And as of that time, Don Walker has just gone and released the fourth album in his own name. Only the fourth. It's unusual. But he's been very, very busy with Cold Chisel Reformation albums, Text on and Charlie albums. So it's not like he's not been making music all these years. He's been making absolutely wonderful music. In fact, really, to my way of thinking, he's making some of the best music that he's ever made in his own name. His latest album is called Lightning in a Clear Blue Sky just came out maybe about two weeks ago from the time that I'm recording this and it was absolutely a huge thrill for me to be able to speak to a songwriting hero. If I'm sounding a little bit fanboyish I apologize but I'm not really apologizing. It really was very exciting for me to speak to a songwriter who I've admired for 45 years and get the chance to speak to him. In truth I probably would have loved to have been able to speak to him for a good two three hours but the time that I had which was about an hour was really absolutely fantastic. We spoke a lot about songwriting. Uh, We spoke about a couple of other things, but there is next to no talk about Cold Chisel. I'm not going to encourage you to turn this podcast off if that's what you've downloaded this expecting, but really there's a lot of fascinating stuff that Don has been writing in the interim years that he hasn't been writing for Cold Chisel, either writing for Texon and Charlie or Catfish or his current band, The Suave Fucks. Greatest band name ever. A couple of very good friends knowing how happy I was to be doing this interview, contacted me shortly afterwards to ask me, did you ask Don this question? Did you ask Don that question? Truth be known, there's a lot of things, as I said, that I could have asked, but I didn't. Don's been very busy doing interviews on the podcast circuit, on TV, on radio. There's a lot of questions that if you want to hear him talk about his early life in Grafton, uh, his early days in Adelaide, some chisel stuff, then there's plenty of podcasts out there where he's been talking about that. I will recommend that you search out the excellent interview he did for the Be Tutor Advocate podcast. And there's a very good one that he also did for the Good Weekend podcast. Check those two out. They will fill in the details that I didn't ask him around this time. But once again, being a fanboy, I decided I was going to ask him a lot of stuff about songs of his that I have loved over the last... 30 to 40 years since the original breakup of Cold Chisel from his solo and Texton and Charlie catalog. And I hope that you'll find that conversation fascinating. So Joe will now give you the contact details for the podcast and then we'll launch straight into the conversation that I had with Don a few days ago. I'll be back at the end of the show to talk about what's happening next episode of Love That Album. Meanwhile, enjoy my discussion with Don Walker. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com Com, where you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion. Rogers, Williams, Mojo, Nixon, 
seen on the lost highway I'll ride all night and I'll ride all day When I win the lottery Welcome back to episode 166 of Love That Album and I've never had the opportunity to introduce my guest onto the show by saying he is the suavest fuck on the planet. I'm welcoming to the show piano playing hero, songwriting hero all round, Mr. Don Walker. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Morris. Thank you so much for being available. I want to start off by saying congratulations on your wonderful new album, Lightning in a Clear Blue Sky. I've been living with it for a few weeks and have really, really been enjoying that and we'll get to a few questions about that a little bit later on in the chat but I wanted to start off with a question in relation to something that I saw a few years back on YouTube. You were giving a speech, I think in 2016, at the APRA Awards, uh, where Cold Chisel had won the Ted Albert Award for Outstanding Services to Australian Music. You started off your acceptance speech by talking about, you said that you'd obviously, you'd never met Ted Albert, but of course his legacy had been left all over the Australian landscape and there were a lot of bands on the album its label in the 70s who were Cold Chisel's peers, even though you guys weren't on Albert Recordings. And you also mentioned that in the early days, the band had played with Harry Vander and George Young. So I'm curious to see how you as a songwriter viewed Vander and Young at the time. Was Cold Chisel beholden to the Easy Beats or any of the Vander and Young songwriting, like with uh, Flash in the Pan or any of that sort of stuff? Cold Chisel wasn't beholden to Vander and Young, but I was very much. Uh, and I still regard them as being, they're the benchmark for songwriting in this country. I never took too much notice of the Easy Beats. I was at school when that was happening. So I guess when I started to appreciate Harry and George was... Uh, when they were well into their flash in the pan stage and when Alberts picked up the Angels, who were contemporaries of ours from uh, Adelaide, and when we went, we were spending a lot of time at the Alberts headquarters in King Street recording uh, the second Cold Chisel album. Harry and George were working in there at the same time the ACDC guys had gone overseas. We had known them for years because of personal connections between Bon and, you know, Adelaide connections with Bon. And Jimmy had sung for Fraternity after Bon left. Was that correct? Uh, fraternity paged Jim from us for about six months, I think. Don't quote me on the six months, but we are going to podcast. <laughs> You're uh, quoting you on the six months. Yes, uh, but it was something like that. Those guys, those fraternity guys had all been very closely associated with Bond mm -hmm. before he went east and joined what they viewed as a kid's band. <laughs> <laughs> and having started out with a bubblegum band, so he was all over the shop, you know, the Valentines and Fraternity doing their sort of blues and folky stuff, and then ACDC, he, he really had range. Yeah, so we were also uh, closely connected to Vince Lovegrove. Vince was uh, Cold Chisel's first manager. So anyway, for me, Vander and Young are kings. 
their songwriting, especially in that, for me, the, 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 the flash and the pan songwriting, nobody else has come close to that in this country, and certainly not me. <laughs> well, that's debatable, but they certainly were brilliant songwriters. That's absolutely mm. that argument. So you mentioned about the angels coming from Adelaide. So I'm, I'm interested, at the time that Cold Chisel started 50 years ago this year, congratulations, what was the Adelaide music scene like? I mean, we all know like nationally what was happening, you know, the early 70s with the advent of pub rock, but just on a local level, were there any bands that you were particularly a fan of that didn't necessarily break out to national level? Not really. Adelaide had been, um, there had been a blues boom there in the late 60s, early 70s, and there were a lot of good players came out of that. I missed that. I didn't land in Adelaide till 1973. And by that stage, that had all died off. What was mainly going on when I landed there was um, a lot of Yes was very big in all those English bands. Culturally, for Adelaide and South Australia, there was a huge influx in the 60s of British, especially north of England and Scottish, skilled workers, whole suburbs of them. They imported with them good taste in music. The biggest heroes in Elizabeth when I got there were Alex Harvey and Stevie Wonder. Was that more bands who were respectful of Alex Harvey and Stevie Wonder or the general public? I mean, was the general public sort of like listening a lot to local pub bands in, in Adelaide at the time? The scene was cover bands. Okay. Yeah, so nobody was doing any original stuff. Any bands that were doing original stuff were trying to ape, yes. But if you went into pubs and saw the cover bands, there were they'd be doing top 40 stuff very well. Or there were various soul bands who would be doing, you know, Barley Brothers and a bit of Stevie Wonder if they could if they could hack it, stuff like that. So it was really another few years before, um, I mean, I'm speaking of, I guess, what I know from Victoria here where I am, by the mid to late 70s, where original bands ruled and certainly in the 80s in the pubs. I mean, yeah, there were sure there were your fair smattering of cover bands. That was a thing. But bands like yourself, you know, Cold Chisel and, and the Angels and Rose Tattoo and all these bands were, you know, the pubs was their home before the big concert halls and arenas were their home. Yes. And, and, and that original band thing, the bands that you've mentioned, that was a late 70s thing. Adelaide wasn't really big enough. The Angels were a cover band. They, they were a Chuck Berry cover band. And they had a, a jug band before that. Well, you won't need to hug you all night long just to keep away the cold. Your mama told you making love is wrong and you're doing like your mama told. But that's all right with me. Oh, babe, it's all right with me. They were successful as a Chuck Berry cover band, but not a band you would take seriously as an original band. And next minute, I don't know how it happened, but they're signed by Alberts and their songwriting is being curated by the masters. Adelaide is, you know, it's a lovely place to be and to live, but it was not a big enough town to, Melbourne's a big place. So in Melbourne, you could have you could have a, a breakout band like Skyhooks, which is really they're writing songs about a suburb of Melbourne and take the nation by storm. That's an original band. I remember living in the 70s and ego is not a dirty word coming out and thinking, wow, they're writing about my backyard. That's incredible. I, mean, yes. I, was, too, I was too young at the time to really understand everything that they were talking about. But I grew mm -hmm. up and ah, I know what they're doing there. You put your twisties right down there in your lap No one ever guesses you want to tip the bag off 
I read you say in an interview that your early memories of hearing music as a child in the house in, included Duke Ellington and Ella Fitzgerald. And there were times I sort of thought, I wonder whether that sort of influenced uh, the way how you wrote. I wasn't sure. And then I sort of thought about songs like Just How Many Times or The Party's Over or indeed even on your new album, a couple of songs which I want to talk a little bit in more detail later on, Empty Dance or Damaged People. And I sort of thought, wow, yeah, okay, there's maybe not necessarily Ella Fitzgerald or Duke Ellington, but Ray Charles or maybe Mose Allison. I mean, consciously or otherwise, do you think any of those sorts of jazz greats influenced the way how you wrote some of your material? Oh, big time. The only trouble was how do you fit that into, um, you know, a rock and roll band or a heavy metal band? We were really a heavy metal covers band in Adelaide in the early 70s. That's really what Colchester was, yeah. I not only love Duke Ellington, I'm like anybody who's 20 years old, their listening is really wide. When my children pass through that phase and I look at the range of their listening, it's just astonishing. They're across everything that I ever listened to and then multiplied by 10. I was listening to uh, Duke Ellington, Led Zeppelin, Frank Zappa, all the Miles Davis stuff and, and everything that was growing out of that. Brian Auger, Traffic, on and on and on. And the other guys, because they were a few years younger, they were sort of a different, they were half, half a generation. So they were listening to all this English stuff that I didn't think was any good. Like, like what? Sweet. Okay. And, um, yeah, English stuff of that. If you're a fashionable young bloke in 1973, yeah. you weren't listening to Zeppelin anymore. Really? Yeah, that was that was like 18 months passe. <laughs> I, I didn't think at that period. I thought like 1973, the song remains the same. That was that was reasonably big. I would have thought that they still hadn't hit their popularity peak, but there you go. The big band for the younger guys was free and Paul Kossoff and that stuff. I want to shoot forward a few years beyond the start of Chisholm. Please do. Okay. Uh, <laughs> most, most of these questions actually are not about Chisel at all. So I think this might have been the same year as Circus Animals got released, but you went and composed a score for, I think it might have been the first film by Scott Hicks called Freedom, which took me only until maybe about six months ago or so before I actually got to see the film for the first time. It was like at the time, it was in the cinema for a week and then it was out, but I remember that you had this great score written for the film. When I'm confused Don't know right from wrong Get in the shaker and drive it all night long. How did you get involved in writing music for that film? Did you have a personal connection to Scott? I think he's an Adelaide guy, isn't he? I think Scott's English, but the, the movie was produced by the South Australian Film Corporation, and I think maybe Scott lived down there. They approached me, the, the SAFC approached me to do the score, just because by 1981 or whenever it was, they... You know, Cold Chisel was really big. And for me, I always loved soundtracks. And I thought I had a soundtrack in me. And this was just like the first movie that came along. I didn't know a lot about movies. I've never been a never been a huge train spotter for movies. I loved the movies, but I always loved the wrong ones. So they were going to give me all this money to record background music. And, and I said, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Have you ever sort of felt like you wanted to score another movie? I mean, have you done anything in the interim, soundtrack-wise? No. 
Oh, yes, I did. There was a detective movie with Brian Brown in it in the 80s, but they didn't ask me. They asked me to come up with a title song and record that, and I did that. That's all. I don't know how you'd feel about this, but I've often sort of gone and thought about some of your songs as like mini movies unto themselves. So um, to me, your song from We're All Gonna Die Eternity sounds to me like it belongs in a David Lynch film, maybe Wild at Heart or something like that. It just got that sound of the road. Long ago. Far away I was hitchhiking on a clear blue day Cat's eyes broke in my feet My tongue was dry as the hills where Jesus hung Yet I learned and wondered if he died for me On a highway straighter than a bottom of eternity And a song that you haven't recorded in the studio, but I heard you perform live a couple of times, which was Darwin. And it just sounds like it either belongs in an Australian road movie or it is a road movie unto itself. So there you go. Two songs about the road. Do you often sort of see pictures in your head when you're writing these songs? Do you think of them as little movies? I mean, I know you've gone and said things that you don't think you're a storyteller. I beg to differ, but do you see images in your head with any of your songs when you compose them? Oh, yeah. I think it's hopefully it's all quite pictorial. But as you write it, do you have like a specific image in, in your head? Yeah, yeah, you, you're writing a scene. I recall playing your first album post Cold Chisel, Unlimited Address, which you did under the name of Catfish. And it was something like about five or six years after the initial split of Chisel. And you traveled across Asia and Europe for much of those intervening years. Were you ever doubtful that you'd return to music, much less as a frontman? Um, when Cold Chisel broke up in 1983, I flittingly, I, I did think, you know, well, I'd like to keep doing music, but I've got to be realistic. You know, by that stage, I was into my 30s, and certainly the opportunities weren't there for a piano player to go and do something. You know, that's that's the reality of the music industry. But, you know, I continued to play with music and write songs from time to time to try and figure out how I could, how I could sing them because I'm not a natural singer. And I had been used to writing for the two best singers. It took a while to dip the toe in the water and, and for some good people to back me to make a record. How did you choose the musicians that you did from on those early albums like I think you have uh, is it Ricky Fatah who's playing on drums on um, on the first Catfish album and I know that you got Ian playing on a couple of songs so I guess you know wanting to work with old friends again but was Catfish more your nom de plume or did you intend it as a band? It was going to be a nom de plume and it was going to be anonymous of course I wanted to come out with something that's with a clean slate that's uh, that's a new band that doesn't carry any of the baggage of, oh, this is the guy out of Cold Chisel. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's plenty of examples around of anonymous bands where nobody knows who they are, and they have that freedom to do what they like without any baggage from history. Uh, and I wanted to do that. Uh, there was no way of, you know, getting anybody in a record company to accept that in the mid-'80s. They just did not see the wisdom in that whatsoever. That was never going to happen. Um, as far as people to work with, there were – I came out of the whole cultures thing with them with a small list of people that I trusted, and in particular, Dave Blight, the harmonica player, and Peter Walker, mm -hmm. who producer and guitar player, you know, who really made the Catfish albums. And aside from that, it was whoever I knew and trusted at the time. I can't remember how I connected up with Ricky Fatah. He was living here at the time, living over on Edgecliff Road, and, and his daughter was the same age as my daughter, and 
and he was uh, producing and playing with people that I knew. The Catfish albums are not is really really searching for a direction. Mm. Uh, I wanted to do songs that were expansive, and the albums have that. They reflect sounds and harmonic approaches that are that I always loved, but were nothing to do with cultures. Do you see that the sound of those albums, particularly the first album, which sounds very much like an '80s album production-wise? Do you see that either your songwriting or the sound of the album reflects your travels? Like a song like "When You Dance," when you hear Dave Blight doing his harmonica thing, then it's very Australian. But the sound—it almost sounds like a, a European to me. Yeah, that's that's the the Vander and Young coming out. You know, uh, mm-hmm. when you dance is a disco song. Yes, uh, I, I loved good disco, and I I loved Giorgio Moroder. Wow, that's not something I'd have predicted. Okay. Yeah, the, all the guys in Colchester went and saw um, what's the Giorgio Moroder the movie that that he did the soundtrack for uh, the, Midnight Express. Midnight Express in a cinema in um, Auckland mm-hmm. when we're touring over there. And we were completely knocked out by, you know, this, the sequences and the electronic music. And there are other bands in Sydney fooling around with that stuff at the time. The cold sound of the chords. And you can hear that in Harry and all that Harry and George stuff that, that they did for Flash in the Pan that were big dance floor hits in Europe. I was infected with that. I was only noting with someone last month. Last month on the podcast, actually did a couple of shows in relation to the life of George Young and music of the Easy Beats. And I listened to a lot more Flash in the Pan than I previously had. I knew the 70s hits, but the further I delved into their back catalogue, they sounded very much like Euro disco. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, something I'd never predicted considering that George Young during the Easy Beats time said, keep it meat and potatoes. That's what he advised ACDC. Don't try to go prog. Don't try to write a love song. Just do what you do. Keep it meat and potatoes, rock and roll. But he, yes. that wasn't his artistic philosophy, just his commercial philosophy, so it would seem. Yes, there's another connection too that that I regret. Later in life, I knew Harry a little bit. I have known Harry a bit, little bit, although I haven't seen him for a few years now. I, I always detected in their songwriting um, connection to the Four Tops. Oh, wow. The little symphonies that are the Four Tops songs sound a lot to me like Harry and George, except I wouldn't necessarily say that Harry and George necessarily were influenced by the Four Tops. It could well have been the other way around because I know that Barry Gordy and all the people in um, Motown were huge fans of Harry and George. Wow, I did not know that. That is fascinating. That just might be in in the back of my the, uh, that four tops connection it might be in the back of my head. It's something that that I or somebody should check with Harry, and I can imagine Harry saying "fork off," because <laughs> <laughs> um, part of Harry's charm is that he's nice and blunt. So I, I could be completely wrong. Just listening to the songs, there's a lot of sophistication going on in, in those little four top symphonies. That's similar to the sophistication going on in the Flash and the Pan stuff. I'm not going to listen to either act. In the same light now, but I'm going to be making comparisons in my head. Mm. Uh, given that I have you here, I, as I said, we I do want to get to Lightning in a Clear Blue Sky so 
much wonderful stuff on there. But while I have you here, I want to ask about songs from your back catalogue that so much wonderfulness. I could probably speak to you for hours, but I want to start off with on your Petfish album, Ruby, there's the song, The Year That He Was Cool. Answering only to his own sweet law, dead pan and alive. He could surf the curl on a barmaid's lip. He could surf the yard of beer. He surfed the break down the Queensland coast to six Which thematically takes a darker approach to the subject covered in flame trees, I think. Uh, You know, returning home to a small country town versus looking at the guy that never left. Did you know that guy? Did you know someone who just always stayed in the small country town and always thought it was still 1965? Um, uh, Quite a few. (laughs) (laughs) There was a particular guy and I have uh, put this in writing. After Cold Chisel broke up, I was kind of, no, I was right out of the music industry but they have the up in Grafton they have the Jacaranda Festival some people up there contacted me and said why don't you come up and play with some of the old boys that you used to play with in high school who are all great guys and great musicians because there's a local pub owner here and wants to put on a, you know a show to raise money for something in the hospital for you know a machine in the hospital and you know we'll fly you up you can stay with your brother and you know we'll just have an afternoon of fun and this was Jacaranda Thursday, where there's like thousands and thousands of people just in the centre of Grafton getting drunk and and, tr- and picking a fight. And uh, <laughs> and so I flew up there for free. They picked me up and they took me into town. And there in this pub in the middle of the town with thousands of people packed around it was this huge banner that said, Welcome Cold Chisel. Oh, no. So I died a little bit looking at that because... Uh, I rightly thought, predicted that there's going to be some very angry people when it's just me (laughs) on stage (laughs) and some other local guys. And that's that's the way it turned out. But in the back room, there were mates and I had a good day and it raised money. And but there was one guy who somehow got backstage who had been, you know, when I was in high school in Grafton, I was not so much uncool as invisible. Mm. And there were some people around, you know, mainly people in the surf culture who were extremely cool and it was one of them there and I was getting a lot of back slapping and and all that and he said to me quietly wasn't like this once with you was it he wasn't saying it in a nice way saying it like I remember you little fuck (laughs) (laughs) I still run this town and that's what prompted me to write the song it definitely came the song came from that moment Another song I wanted to bring up was one from We're All Gonna Die, the song Three Blackbirds. Three blackbirds flew together On the gather of a storm A cyclone wind that blew in bitterly And one sang for the ocean and another for the Lord 
about three men involved in the slave trade and diving to the bottom of the ocean, picking up pearls and converting slaves to Christianity. And this is actually similar subject matter for a song that Chris Wilson had gone and performed with, I believe, your new guitar player who played on that song, uh, Shannon Bourne. I gather that you're a big history buff. What inspired you to tell this epic tale? It's like about 16 to 17 minutes. So involving. In 1984, after Cold Chisel broke up, I drove my car around Australia and I finished up in Broome, where I had never been. I had never been to most of the country in the quarter between Perth and Darwin because, um, you know, bands just didn't go there. I fell in love with Broome and that whole end of the country. I was living in a tent on Cable Beach. There was nothing there, Cable Beach at that time, where you could stay. And just sort of floating around and, and in some shop or, or local, you know, the kind of local place where... You know, they sell cheesecloth shirts and fake boomerangs, plastic boomerangs and whatever to the few tourists that are coming through. I found a booklet with this story in it. And as I read the story, I thought, this, there's a song in here. And um, I hoovered up as much information as I could, given that this was decades pre the internet and you couldn't really do much, the kind of historical research you can do now. And I wrote the song over over the course of a couple of years, I think, just tooling with it here and there. You tell me there's a Chris Wilson song? There's a Chris Wilson song called Blackbirding on his album King for a Day, and I think Shannon Bourne is playing guitar on that song. Okay, I'm not aware of that song. I'll get Shannon to shoot me a copy. Blackbird for slaves, blackbirding. Black burning, they're strong and they're able to harvest the king with its nectar like gold. Would you curse the foul soul of the ship and its crewmen with its cargo of black pearls? Jingle I can't know which one came out first, but finding out about this was a history, this was a thing. I always knew it was a thing. Blackbirding for me was a North Queensland thing. Okay. Because I was was born in North Queensland and blackbirding had to do with islanders being in Pacific Islanders for sugarcane labour. So I wasn't aware of the history over in the Northwest Hmm. where the blackbirding had to do with Indigenous people and, and the pearling industry. Now Harry Hunter's dreams were filled with silver and with gold And Frenchie said a gypsy can't be blamed As he sailed back down to Cossack I know that your time is limited, so I'll hold off my other historical song question. I want to let's get into talking about uh, your great new album, Lightning in a Clear Blue Sky. I'm wondering whether you consciously did this, whether the opening song on the album, the closing song on the album, both slow piano ballads, uh, the first one, Empty Dance Hall, offers some hope to a person who's gone through hard times and damaged people at the end of the album could be about that same person who's praying to a deity that they're not convinced to exists and is afraid he's alone in the universe. So the album sort of starts out with a little bit of hope and ends up sounding like almost with no hope. I've got the song, baby, we'll need to live. I have this long, empty dance hall to give. 
I'll give you all the red. Did you sort of think about the sequencing, or or, or is it just, yep, this is a good piano song, this is a good piano song, I want to start and end it like that? But thematically, did you think about it like that? Uh, no, I didn't think about it like that. Som- somatically, they're they're quite different to me. Um, Empty Dance Hall is a is a love song. It's an it, it's an invitation. Mm-hmm. It's an invitation to engage. You know, a person to person invitation. Whereas Damaged People is is a prayer. That's not a dialogue between two people at all. That's a dialogue between a a person alone and God, hopefully, or a deluded person who's just talking into a vacuum. Right. You're right. They're they're both sparse piano. The sequencing, the the fact that if you finish the album and you move to put it on again, that you would hear one after the other. Uh, it wasn't until after I had done the sequencing that I noticed. Oh yeah, this 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 kind of top and tails it quite nicely. <laughs> My God, there's some damaged people around. There's some damaged people. And there's only you. I really do want to ask you about the centerpiece of the album, which is the title track, another epic length wing thing, Lightning in a Clear Blue Sky. In your own notes about the album, you state that it's an apocalyptic song. The actual title is a rarity in nature, but it can happen. From a storytelling perspective, is that rarity a sign of danger, a sign of widespread chaos to come, do you think? And the song is like a metaphor for, I don't know, whatever, the the end of times, horsemen of the apocalypse or something like that. I know I I can sometimes read too much into this sort of thing. Sophie wasn't only bright Now that the decision's done Taking on a lonely ride Taking on a road that runs 700 miles between Desert and the high, high range. The imagery in it, I read a lot of, uh, not only the Bible, but uh, but a lot of, what would you call it, uh, apocryphal or esoteric early religious literature. Stuff from second and third century. I'm, I'm quite interested in, in how ideas develop as they propagate through a new culture. Mm-hmm. How they can completely change the, the new culture, like Christianity completely overturning the Roman Empire. How did that happen? Or in the sixth century, Islam. How does that happen? What, what's the power in an idea that it can completely overturn a society and a culture? I think we're in similar times now, except things move a lot more quickly. And I've had the benefit of living in, uh, we all have had the benefit of living in an incredibly peaceful and settled time in human history. No matter what anybody thinks, if you think this isn't a peaceful and settled time, you should have a look at 
what came before and and I don't believe we're necessarily going to hold on to that. I'm towards the end of my life now, but I don't think my kids and grandkids are going to have such an easy time. That's a, that's a long way from the question, isn't it? It is, it is a bit of a way from the question. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so do you see lyrically that this song, which seems to be more vignettes or images about the situation of this character, Sophie, who seems that she's escaping from something horrible that's happened in a character, Carson, who was hit by the mob. Sophie is the only bride, or is an only bride, which I think is a great opening line. I don't know, maybe her husband was killed by Carson. The line, everything's about to change just sounds so dangerous to me. And I love Garrett Costigan's pedal steel there, which really sounds like it's bringing up the dangerous, just you and Garrett. And once again, to come back to what I spoke about before I asked you about soundtracks, it really sounds like you're showing a short movie, except we're just hearing it rather than watching it. It, it sounds like almost like film noir. Is that what you're intending with? And also because the, the instrumentation comes in a bit at a time, how much does a arrangement affect what you do or do you just work things out in the studio or do you have in your head right i want the arrangement to sound like this the imagery and that danger and everything are, are coming out of it's not conscious it's like if you drink milo after a little while you're going to smell like milo um <laughs> uh, so if, you, if you're reading the texts i was talking about after a while uh, the stuff that that spills out when you're writing is going to sound like that too so this song was really just a title lightning in a clear blue sky which may have jumped into my head one day that might come back to there's a particular bible verse i think in somewhere out Matthew 20, uh, I, I can't give you, but it's it's talking about the second coming and it's talking about in the second coming, there will be lightning split the sky from the east to the west. And there's a verse that follows that about uh, where the bodies lie, the eagles will gather, which I don't know what that means. These are very, very striking images. So maybe that lodged in my head and came out in the form of a song title. And then I got that uh, first line that you mentioned, Sophie was an only bride, and all the rest of the bits and pieces of the song sort of wrote themselves. And it was a case of putting them in an order that seemed to make some kind of sense. But if you ask me what the hell is actually going on here, I, I may have a clearer idea of that in a couple of years. It definitely sounds like it's it's a, a, a crime story, like a film noir. We got, you know, the the images of the only bride and Carson had to pay. And you've got the mariachi horn section in the middle. I mean, how much more yeah. of a crime film soundtrack than that? The music, of course, is all figured out after the song is written. I've got the, the lyrics and the melody and the chords, and then I'm trying to figure out how do we actually do this for a band with a band so that people don't get bored four minutes in with nine minutes to go uh, musically. We keep them listening to the words, and we, and we did a lot of trying out all sorts of stuff in rehearsal rooms how we could sustain such a long song. The early verses were always going to be just super sparse and bringing everybody in one by one. You can chew up a bit of time doing that. A lot of it's accidental and trying this and oh, oh yeah, okay, let's go with that. The whole idea of slowing it down for the middle instrumental bit 
uh, Hamish did that, our drummer. What the fuck's down here? The idea of the getting Edgar Sanchez in Mex- Mexico City to put the spaghetti western horns on, that happened long after we'd recorded it. I was sitting with the engineer one night. I, I said to the engineer, this needs mariachi horns. Said, you know, there must be a mariachi band in Melbourne. And Finn, there was just me and the engineer there, he said, I don't know. He said, I, I know a Spaniard. <laughs> I'll ring him. So he rings this Spaniard and the guy says, yeah, no problem. I'll set it up for you. Next minute, he's talking to a trumpet player in Mexico City who doesn't speak English. And uh, and so we shoot this, an MP3 over and, and the guy says, yes, I'll do it for 1,800 pesos. And, and I'm thinking, fuck. I don't know, how badly do I want these horns? So then we look up the exchange rate and realise that it's like, you know, I don't know, 200 bucks. So (laughs) (laughs) It's all accidental and fun stuff like this. This is why I'm doing this and and not working in a screen door factory, Mm -hmm. which is where Ian and Steve were working when Colchester started. Right, right. used to always walk around for years saying, no matter how miserable the situation was, it was always, well, Pete's working in a screen door factory. (laughs) I was, I was wondering whether they were worried, thinking we could have been promoted to foreman if we'd have stayed on at the screen door. Right, yes. Flaming up before they die and flickerings they unwind. The last one I want to ask you about from the new album is My Malaver, and a wonderful song in its own right, but with a handful of exceptions, I'm not used to Don Walker writing a love song. You know, when I think Don Walker, I'm thinking songs about King's Cross, murder, growing up in the country, traveling. I mean, there, there are exceptions, you know, just how many times, and one night in Soviet Russia, uh, and I'm sure you're going to say, oh, I can rattle off another dozen without even thinking, but it does seem like a rarity. What was it that inspired you to write that song? So- Days, the whole world's got a song for you And it don't matter what you do There's nothing in this world could bring you down I've got that song, I've got the silver All my lonely days are over Cause tonight my sweet Malaver's back in town well, it's I do have love in my life. I've got the children to prove it, and um, <laughs> so it's one of those situations. It's quite an old song. Okay, it's a situation where somebody you love has been absent, travelling, and is coming home. I got to ask: Is the line "It's so good to have you back where you belong" is that inspired at all by "Hello, Dolly"? No, <laughs> no. Okay, I can give right. you. There you go. Answer on that. <laughs> Put that in its place. If you'll indulge me for another few minutes, I still want to ask you another couple of things. Uh, so coming back to what we were talking before about some of your older songs. So this has to go together in a pair. My friend Tim Merrill and uh, podcast co-host, we bonded together. Oh, he's from Canada. And when we met, he held up a copy of All Is Forgiven by Texton and Charlie while we were talking over Skype. He said, are you a fan of these guys? And I said, Tim, we're going to be great friends, I can tell. Um, <laughs> so we did a podcast very early on on All Is Forgiven. And I know that a song, well, two songs that 
he really, really loved, as as do I, where Harry is a bad bugger, which I know you've kept in the suave fuck sets over the years, is you know, like a spoken word piece that does in four minutes what Underbelly took seasons to do. And it's less a story, more character piece, but had terrific lines like, for 10 or 15 years, we'd see Harry come and go like an ugly piece of weather. It's straightforward narrative, but with such a great turn of phrase. You were telling me before about the guy, you knew the guy in the year that he was called. Did you know a Harry or hear stories about a real Harry? Like a shark at a funeral. Harry always moved in small town circles. And no one ever knew until later who'd been taken. And who'd been left alive undamaged Until the next time he came through uh, Harry's a compendium of three guys And one of them remained and remains a, a, a good friend late in life These are guys who, when I was in a small town growing up going to high school These were the guys who were five years, maybe a, a few years older, wiser, incredibly street smart, and some of them musicians, but you're kind of ruthless heroes when you're a gormless kid. So there's they're three guys. Okay, so any of the stories in that true, or was it just like the characterization? Uh, it's the characterization. I, they they didn't. Uh, well, I I don't know of specific inf- instances of any of them killing anybody. <laughs> well, but if it, for that. But if it happened, if I learned that, I wouldn't go. Oh, well, that's a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> and the other song for me from that album and my friend Tim uh, that goes hand in hand with this, I think, is another night in, which sounds to me like a first person account of the character of Frank Booth, played by Dennis Hopper in Blue. Velvet, which is where your band name comes from. God damn, you're one swap fucker. Drinking whiskey, doing cocaine, watching pornography. It sounds like a fever dream. It's, you know, this slow, and you do slow songs so damn well. Where does another night come in come from? Looking out at the wind and the rain. It's another night in for me Drinking whiskey Doing cocaine And watching pornography uh, that's just a, another puerile attempt to make Tex and Charlie laugh. <laughs> Did it work? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yes. Um, the first time I played that and got to the pornography punchline, they fell off the seat. Uh, it worked. As far as the tempo goes, that's, I can place that straight at the feet of Jim White, who you know did our recording on that album he was the drummer on the first two text on and charlie albums from the dirty three i think they might have cooked that up between jim white and charlie you know how slow can we do this it was definitely <laughs> when i was recording it i was thinking man that oh, these guys are this is so slow 
but you know, it's like, can you do it? Yeah, that's slow. One, I probably should have asked this one earlier. It's not necessarily a way how to finish the discussion, but I'm just as guilty of this as anyone. The conversation often revolves around your work as songwriter, but do you think of yourself equally as a pianist or do you just see the piano as a tool to perform your songs? Uh, no, I, I don't think I'm much of a pianist. I know I'm not much of a pianist. I can do the necessary things in the band that I'm, bands that I'm in that will actually add to what we're doing probably better through my limitations uh, than people who have much greater skill as a piano player. I know people who are much better piano players than I am, but if you if you tried to put them in cold chisel or text on and Charlie, it would be a disaster. The guts would drop out of the band and, and they'd be playing all over everybody else. And so what I do, I, I was a much better piano player, say, going into the first or the second cold chisel album. Mm-hmm. And then gradually as cold chisel evolved, I very, very much simplif- more and more simplified what I was doing to leave room for Ian to, you know, really flower in what he was doing. It always did seem unusual to me that for a band where the main songwriter was a pianist, it was more of a guitar-sounding band. I mean, your the piano certainly had its place and to my ears was distinctive. Did you ever have to sort of say to Ian, this is what I think this should sound like from you as who's not a guitar player? Or did he always know how to approach uh, your compositions? Do you think he was you know, like a, a master interpreter of your songs? Oh, no. I, when, when I bring a song to an outfit, I have a pretty clear idea of what I would like people to play. But I'm also careful not to fence them in too much. You've got to leave people room to play the way that they would normally play. The key is to find somebody, find people who are playing the way that you're hearing in your head anyway. Uh, uh, That means that when you go in and say to them, well, here's a new song, and this is the kind of thing that need the guitar to play, it shouldn't be too far away from their natural instincts. Otherwise, the relationship they're going to they're going to go away and be happy somewhere else (laughs) after a little while. This has just been absolutely wonderful talking to you. Now, uh, for the listeners who are going to get to hear this before you go out on tour, so you're starting your tour to promote Lightning in a Clear Blue Sky. Well, we're we're recording this in mid-May. So tell us about the tour. When's that starting? How's that going through? Where are you going? How can people come and catch you? The the coming weekend, as we speak, we're playing in um, Umundi on Friday night, the 19th of May. We're playing at the Old Museum in um, in uh, Brisbane on Saturday, the 20th. And on the 21st in the afternoon, we're playing at Blues at Broadbeach on the Gold Coast, mm-hmm. which is a blues festival they have up there. And then in mid-June, we're playing at the Factory Theatre in Sydney and down at uh, Barrel Bowls. 
uh, one weekend and the following weekend we're playing in Melbourne at the Sookie Lounge in Belgrove and at the Mimo Music Hall in St Kilda. Which is where I'm catching you. Um, I think right. last last okay. time I saw you there was with Texton and Charlie and I'd seen you more times than I can remember at the late lamented Caravan Club. One other story, I mean, I don't know how much this will mean, but probably I think one of the greatest nights at a gig that I've ever spent was seeing you on the tour following the release of We're All Gonna Die and you played at the St Kilda Bowls Club in Fitzroy Street, St Kilda. There wasn't that much of a size of an audience, but the band played like you had like 50,000 people in front of you. I mean, not not in terms of like you're not a stadium type band, but you're a band that was committed to playing the best that you were going to do for, for this audience. So it was besides yourself, obviously, Ian Moss, Peter Wells and Paul DeMarco from Rose Tattoo and Paul Burton. Now, Paul was a, a, a double bass player who, I don't know, was it you or Ian discovered busking in Sydney? He wasn't busking. He was an Adelaide rockabilly double bass player who I first saw at the Mansell Room with the Mil- with the Milky Bar Kids, oh, who were okay. a rockabilly band. For some reason, I had it in my head that he had been discovered busking or something like that. But um, but yeah, what an incredible outfit! And that was rock royalty. Um, I, I, I'm sorry, I just got to say, I wanted to for years to say thank you for what was a fantastic night. Thank you, Don. Been absolutely a huge pleasure and a huge treat being able to speak to you this afternoon. Uh, I wish you much success with the album and with the tour looking extremely forward to seeing you in a few weeks at the Mimo Lounge I look forward to whatever new music that you put out uh, in the coming few years you're probably about due for another text on and Charlie album right or is it not the 12 years up yet uh, not for a few years yet <laughs> <laughs> alright look after yourself thanks very much for your time really super appreciate it thank you Morris breaking like silver needle now beyond the speed of light wandering canyons of the interstellar Once again, my huge thanks to Don Walker for taking the time to speak to me. I hope I didn't sound too inane. Either way, he was very, very gracious with his time and with his responses. Uh, I also like to send out a huge thanks to Rena Ferris. She's from Ferris Davies Publicity Promotion and Event Management Services. She's the lady who very, very kindly set me up with Don for this interview. So thank you very much, Rena, for making this happen. Hugely appreciated. So it's time to talk about what's going to happen on episode 167 of Love That Album podcast. And the truth is, I don't know. So I know that a lot of podcasters out there are very, very professional about how they go booking guests and organizing their shows. And they go and make notes in, I don't know, Google Docs or they have some fancy schmancy database. Me, I have these flashcards. I'm holding one in my hand right now, but you can't see it because this is purely an audio medium. But you know those little flashcards that you write notes on if you're giving a public speech or something like that? I mean, well, at least how we used to do it in the old days before we'd go looking at iPads and the like. I still prefer to use these little flashcards, which is what I buy from Officeworks and use to help me out with writing notes for the podcasts. Anyway, I have a little flashcard in which I'd gone and written down for several months every show that I had made a plan to do. 
and it looks like I've gone and lost it. So I don't remember what I have coming on next month. If you're listening to this and you're thinking, hang on, you promised a show to me, then send me an email or something like that and we'll work something out. But otherwise, I've got to work out over the next couple of days what it is that I have planned. I do remember what I have planned for July and August, but we're talking about June now. So I'm very embarrassed, but I hope you'll forgive me and still tune in despite my lack of professionalism. All I can say, therefore, is go out and listen to some Don Walker, listen to some cultures, or text on and Charlie, but really go out and listen to Lightning in a Clear Blue Sky by Don Walker and the Swap Bucks. I hope that you can catch him live on his tour of Australia over the next few weeks. If you're listening from overseas, then at least go and listen to the new album. It's available on record or CD or your streaming service of choice. Otherwise, be nice to each other, look after each other, and I'll speak to you next month for episode 167 of Love That Album Podcast. All the best. Cheers. the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.